I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINNetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the RAIN Insights podcast series. Today, David Lawrence, founder and chief collaborative officer at RAIN, sits down with Ken Yormark. Ken most recently was a partner and practice leader of the Forensic and Litigation Advisory Services practice for a top 25 accounting firm. Ken's experience spans more than 30 years as a subject matter expert in complex investigations and forensic and investigative services, focusing on formulating and implementing innovative strategies regarding forensic accounting and financial investigations. Ken, it's always uh, both a great honor and fun to catch up uh, with you. And uh, this is our first uh, podcast, but obviously not the first time that we've worked together on a variety of assignments. So just by way of introduction for the audience, I thought it would be helpful if um, you gave a bit of an overview of a very uh, long and very well-respected uh, career in the uh, what I'll refer to as the forensic auditing and consulting world. Sure. Thank you, David. And it's it's always a pleasure to, to have a conversation with you. I think today is going to be fun. Um, so I, I, I started my career um, as an auditor at one of the big, big accounting firms. Um, and um, quite frankly, I I was I was really bad at it because I asked too many questions. I was always frustrated about doing the same thing that we did last year. And I was fortunate enough to discover a fraud very early in my career at one of our clients. And that really opened my eyes up to forensic accounting, financial investigations, at a time, quite frankly, when nobody knew what the heck that was. Um, so that was about 35 years ago. Um, and since that time, I've, you know, I've worked at uh, several corporate investigations firms, um, a, a couple of uh advisory firms slash consulting firms um, and and accounting firms. Um, And I've always been doing forensic accounting, financial investigations. Um, And just recently, as of January 1 of this year, um, I decided to open up my own shop. And, you know, with 35 years of experience, I obviously know a lot of really good people, very capable professionals in the industry. So um, I have aligned myself with a lot of those people. And, and with that capability, I can do forensic accounting. We can do litigation support, data analytics, damage calculations, valuation work, asset searching, you name it. We, we can basically uh, cover the area. Okay. And uh, I've always, uh, while you've been in the private sector, I always uh, view the opportunities not only to work with you, uh, but quite frankly, to learn from you as um, you're contributing uh, very much um, a form of public service uh, because of the questions you ask, uh, the issues you highlight, and also some of the lessons from other events that you you, you try to educate people about. And we are going to, I'm, go, I'm going to extract right now, Ken, a promise that we will do a separate podcast on the issue of forensic accounting and uh, the art of diligence and asking the right questions. Um, For those in the audience, I've shared with Ken um, 
sort of my take on um, the famous expression, it's the economy stupid, uh, to say it's the accounting stupid and why that is yeah, just central to, uh, to diligence. And uh, we're recording this at a particular inflection point in history uh, where um, there are bank failures, uh, there have been a number of failures in the crypto space and also within the last year some significant blow-ups with uh, publicly listed companies uh, abroad. So again, uh, a conversation to be continued. So the reason we're speaking today is uh, we're about to begin one of the great sporting events uh, in the country, if not the world, the NCAA college uh, basketball tournament. And uh, I became recently uh, aware of some of the great work you've done over the last couple of years, thinking about how best to preserve the integrity of the game, um, whether it's in basketball or football, baseball, soccer, a.k.a. football in the rest of the world, etc. And and thinking long and hard about some of the issues that can arise uh, around uh, sports in large part uh, because of the, um, what I'll refer to as the growth in uh, the betting industry. Uh, betting has always occurred in sports and we'll get into maybe the history of some of the scandals that have occurred in the past, um, but certainly with the advent of various platforms and various apps, uh, you can not only bet on uh, legally on various sport events, but there, there are all sorts of prop bets uh, that one can place on different aspects of these games. So maybe uh, begin with the following, uh, giving us just a bit of an introduction, how you became interested in this space. And I'm going to put this under a broad umbrella because you and I have, obviously, we've had many conversations about this, but the point being, how do you avoid uh, a crisis? Do we have to wait for a crisis to occur before we respond? Are there certain things that we know historically, factually, as a matter of culture, as a matter of human behavior, that we have to be prepared for and assume can occur? And so what, what can we do uh, ahead of the curve? So with that, Ken, maybe share with us your interest around the integrity of the sport. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I, it's not just sports. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm really interested in sports. I love I love to participate and I love to watch. And I think it's it's, you know, something that, you know, uh, our country is in- incredibly embedded in. Um, but I would tell you that um, it's it's not just sports. It's all industries where, you know, you have to be thinking about um, the controls, Right. And how they should be put in place. And unfortunately, as you kind of alluded to, David, um, in many cases, um, the fixes don't come into play uh, until something happens. Right. An event takes place which causes people to look back and say, well, we have to go ahead and do something about this. I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank is a perfect example of that. I mean, we had lessened the rules over the regulators' uh, requirements with these various banks. And, you know, now after one or two banks have collapsed and uh, we're seeing that the issues were there, well, the government is saying we have to strengthen the rules. Well, you know, unfortunately, that's usually the common occurrence where an incident takes place 
and then the controls are put in. Um, it's, you know, the scenario of if you don't know it's broken, you know, why go ahead and fix it? Why spend the money if it doesn't need to be done? And and I'm, I'm an advocate for preventive care in many cases, uh, going in and, and looking at the process prior to the issues that could potentially be a problem because it can be done in a much more effective fashion. It can be done in a much more cost-effective way dramatically. Um, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily uh, tend to be the case in, in most industries. Um, that's just the scenario that we live with um, for the most part. Um, you know, in talking about the the way the world has has um, built up this interest in betting it's always been there but it's always been something that's kind of been behind the scenes uh, we never saw it as out and open as we do today um, if you watch any sporting event in particular football basketball whatever you've got all of these commercials now uh, just pining to get you to sign up with these various different, um, you know, betting, betting groups. Um, and it's becoming a lot more commonplace. Now, there's always been a massive amount of money that's been bet on all of these different events. They talk about the Super Bowl and the billions of dollars and March Madness. Every company has a pool and all of these things have been going on, but it's, it's in our face now. And, and we're starting to see this like perceived opportunity to, to, you know, make some big money, easy money. Um, and, you know, I kind of go back to this old cliche of the fraud triangle. Um, and if you're not familiar with the fraud triangle, there are three pieces to the puzzle. Um, you know, you've got this perceived opportunity, you've got an enhanced amount of pressure, and then you've got certain rationalization that goes goes on for committing what could potentially be a fraudulent activity, right? Um, so you've got this situation where if one of those three things is taking place, there's a real strong possibility that somebody could potentially kind of jump in to the process. Um, now, it, it's, it's not a question of, um, you know, a personality. Um, I see it as more a circumstance. If the circumstances are aligned, then that bad activity might take place. Um, and I, I, I equate it to something called the 20-60-20 rule. Quite frankly, some people look at it as a 10-80-10 rule. Um, but it, it's, it's really where you've got these 20% who are just the best people, the good people, who will never, ever do anything wrong. Uh, they would never even think about it. And then you've got 20% of the world who, who keep me in business, quite frankly, because they're always looking for an angle. They're always looking for the easy way out. They're always looking to potentially kind of beat the system. Um, it's the 60% in the middle that, quite frankly, we have to try and control. Because if that 60% sees a reason to go ahead and take the leap and try and do something illegal, uh, hopefully there is a control that's been put in place which will stop them from doing that. Um, but, you know, there are times when, you know, circumstances for that 60% make it uh, a much more um, make it much more of a reason for them to jump in and do something. For example, you know, the circumstances where um, a person might become jobless or they have 
exorbitant medical bills um, or they feel like they're being wronged and, you know, they haven't gotten a bonus during the year and they want to get back at somebody or they see that other people in their company are doing things that are not necessarily legal and they say to themselves, well, you know, I why, why shouldn't I do it, right? Or there's just this inordinate amount of pressure that people feel and uh, maybe it's a survival mode. Maybe they, they can't put food on the table. Um, you know, all of those things will build up the process for somebody to go ahead and try and take a leap into that space to do something illegal and something fraudulent. So really, I go back to the whole scenario of controls, internal controls being such an important factor in this whole equation, because if somebody sees that there's a gap in their controls, they'll they'll take a, a chance and they'll they'll check to see if that can be, you know, eluded. Um, and if nobody says anything, all of a sudden they start to do something and they feel like they've kind of figured it all out and it just builds and builds and builds. Um, and then it becomes too late to turn around. All right. So you're suggesting more than suggesting you were talking about the risks of uh, human behavior and absolutely and temptation, etc. And uh, what I'm hearing you discuss is that when you think about the um, ability to make money or influence markets, and, and we, look, we see this all the time. You, uh, there's, you know, I, I don't think there will ever be a shortage of insider trading cases uh, for the SEC mm -hmm. to pursue, unless, of course, somebody changes the law and legalizes insider trading. Um, <laughs> and we have seen, you know, in the accounting world, all sorts of games that are played with numbers, with the valuations that are assigned, with related party transactions, with you know various revenue recognition tricks, with you know round trip trading and things like that. And what I'm hearing you say and over the course of your 30 year career is basically you've seen what I refer to as the spectrum of human behavior manifest itself. Um, to take advantage of what I'll refer to as perceived financial opportunities. Yeah, absolutely the case. Um, you know, and I've seen it in all different shapes and sizes. Um, and, and you know, your insider trading point is is uh, an interesting one, uh, where I, I did a little bit of research before we had our conversation today. And uh, you know, the SEC comes out with their numbers every year on on you know what what has actually taken place and what, what kind of cases they've been working on. And they had um, 43 cases relating to insider trading, relating to 93 individuals in 2022. Uh, and that's about 10% of the cases that the SEC brought last year. Um, those are pretty typical numbers. Um, but interestingly enough, they really are starting to become more technically savvy in the way that they're looking at these cases. And they're using advanced analytics to basically go in and spot anomalies, something that we, quite frankly, have been doing for a long time. Um, the SEC has now really, you know, uh, gone into a hyper mode with this. So they're going to start to see a lot more insider trading cases as a result of those types of um, investigative techniques that they're able to use with broad amounts of data. Um, so we should see that rise over the course of the next few years. And and they're looking at cases that are not necessarily huge. They could be smaller cases um, as well as very large ones. And uh, 
then that kind of leads into what piqued my interest about you know some of the current work you're doing around human behavior and where some vulnerabilities or exposures might exist. So we now have just incredible amounts of money that are wagered on a variety of things, including the markets. Um, and you have, you know, fortunately, um, at least here in the U.S., um, there's been an incredible job done, uh, both at the professional level and I'd say the collegiate level, in keeping um, sports as a um, as a clean activity where it hasn't been compromised, it hasn't been corrupted, um, fraud has not been committed, and uh, at least nothing that's been exposed recently. And we do know the leagues spend a lot of money and have some incredibly talented people, including people out of the law enforcement community, who are watching this market and are being even more acutely aware because of the burgeoning legalized gambling and the types of bets that can be placed and who's making odds and who's making predictions. But it is now everywhere, Ken. And what, I'm, uh, what I heard you say, and that's what, again, piqued my interest to, to do a podcast with you, is you believe that, you know, the various displays of human behavior that you've seen over your 30 years, that this environment is a partic- is one that is particularly uh, ripe with temptation uh, to get an edge, to potentially um, take advantage of the large amounts of money that are at stake. And uh, maybe... You know, a good place to begin is I know you've studied the history of sports and some of the ways in which, you know, uh, people have been compromised, whether it's in basketball, um, whether it's in tennis, etc. It's something that we were speaking about before the podcast, which is it has been proposed by uh, the WWE uh, to legalize betting on these scripted matches and to and to adopt almost like an Oscar Academy Awards type platform where someone from ENY or KPMG or whatever uh, only that person will know the the results and thereby the integrity of, of the sport is protected and and stuff but in any event why don't we start with a little bit of history because I know you've come to this particular moment and uh, with a great deal of thought. I will get to the history in a second, but I have to comment on the world wrestling scenario. So I, I, when I first heard about it, I, I kind of shook my head. I, I couldn't believe it because we all know these are scripted matches, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, I went back and did a little bit of research, and they're trying to do this on a state-by-state basis. And not all states are obviously agreeing to this. But one of the things that they're saying is, well, they'll protect the knowledge because an accounting firm will only know the results. And the wrestlers won't be told the end result until a few hours before the event. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what are they going to do? Sequester the wrestlers for four or five hours when, when they know? Um, what about the trainers? What about their friends? Are, what are they going to do to protect themselves about not knowing this? I mean, it, the, the, the scenario kind of blows my mind, to be honest with you. So it's going to be fascinating to watch how that all develops and actually if it becomes, if it comes to fruition. Um, because then they're saying, well, you know, 
the next thing will be we'll be betting on the results of TV shows, like who, which person in, in the TV show is going to get killed off first. So it could go anywhere. Um, to go back to history, I know one you like to talk about is, is, is City College back in the 50s. Um, that's before my time. But, you know, if, in, in, might as well, Ken, <laughs> just to be clear. Okay, might as well. Okay. But, you know, you could go back to um, uh, Pete Rose. Um, betting on games, you know, he never he never said or admitted that he bet on his own games, but he bet on professional baseball games. Uh, Boston College, there was a, a point shaving event back in in seventy eight and seventy nine, and then Tulane had a similar situation back in nineteen eighty four and eighty five. Um, so I mean, it's not like it hasn't happened before. And then you could talk about soccer. If you go back and look at, at the details behind soccer. There are multiple storylines where games have been fixed in in the world of soccer, um, and then there's the one that everybody kind of knows is is the NBA referee Tim Donahue, um, who about 15 years ago, you know, he was betting on games and supposedly was giving information to you know organized crime on different issues relating to the game. Um, so all of those all of those events uh, are are real scenarios and and. Um, it's it's interesting because you know some of this has has resulted in certain organizations doing more than other organizations to kind of review their their product, um, review who their referees are, review the analysis that goes on for each game, and kind of say, see how these decisions are made. Um, I don't know if it's being done in all sports. Um, but, you know, it will be interesting to develop an understanding, a better understanding as I move forward with this in trying to find out what all leagues are actually doing uh, in connection with this kind of a risk. Because I do see the risk expanding in a dramatic way. And, I mean, if you talk about rationalization, I mean, uh, you know, a referee that's making, you know, a small amount of money who's who's working a game side by side with people who are making multi-million dollars per year, um, hard to justify, um, you know, that type of a scenario. Um, you know, referees in various different sports have a lot of control um, and they can dictate a lot of the storylines that take place within those games, which ultimately can result in a change in the scoring change in who wins, but not just that. Incidental issues relating to those games. For example, you know, um, who's going to make the first three throw? Um, who's going who's gonna to score the first touchdown? You know, what, what the length of the national anthem is going to be? All of these things are potentially incidental actions that take place within a game where, you know, somebody might say to themselves, well, you know, it, it's it's not such a big deal if I switch. You know, if I if I bet on something that is insignificant to the end game of the storyline. Um, I was I was out in in uh, Las Vegas one year, and I happened to be there during uh, March Madness, and I went into one of these you know casinos to watch some of the games, and it was really fascinating to listen to the response from the crowd. Because the crowd was cheering for the most incidental moments in the game. And I realized that people were betting on who was going to make the first three. 
and who was going to get foul who's going to be fouled first i mean all of these in, inconsequential pieces of the of the storyline were being bet on it was incredible so let me i, I, I want to make sure that the audience hears this because um these are points that you know we were very specific about this is not a podcast uh, where Ken is saying these are the things going on. This is a podcast to give context that human behavior repeats itself. Um, and uh, I, I told Ken that uh, I love to quote scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And what I'm hearing you say, Ken, is that as more and more money gets bet, uh, is, is available to be... <clears throat> gambled with and as more and more action is taken with all sorts of bets uh, the temptations now more than ever are are present and you know there are a, a number of things within and I know the leagues um, that you know we have some familiarity with doing a tremendous job both in terms of surveillance and training and, and you know using technology to look at games and, you know, understand what's going on and also to coordinate with law enforcement. But what I'm hearing you say is that invariably with the greater amounts of money that um, can be gambled and with the greater variety of ways that people can bet, uh, similarly, the temptations and the risk will, will also rise, uh, maybe not exponentially, but certainly in somewhat lockstep. Yeah, look, I, I would hope, David, that, um, you know, all of these leagues, whether it's college um, or, or professional, would realize that the risk um, is increasing on a daily basis. And as a result of that, they should be looking at how they are putting in their controls to prevent this from taking place so that they don't get into a situation where they have something ugly that happens and they have to go back in and create a whole new process under chaotic circumstances. Um, that's not the way you want this to work. Um, from a PR perspective, it would be a nightmare, obviously. Um, and if, if you can show the public that you're actually doing something to make sure that the game is clean, I think that's really an important thing for people to understand. So I'm glad you brought that up because there are various stakeholders in what's happening. Uh, first of all, you have governments now that are participating in the revenues of legalized gambling. You have the uh, owners, obviously the teams, the terrific leadership of the leagues are very important stakeholders. You have the the public that is watching these events, you have the public that's betting on these events, and you obviously have uh, elected officials and regulators who are responsible for overseeing this. And so with the myriad of stakeholders here, and if I can offer this proposition, uh, this is a situation where we're all sort of in this together um, to be focused on maintaining the integrity of the game. What are some of the things that, you know, you're thinking about, or maybe phrased differently, Ken, what's keeping you up at night a bit uh, around uh, the current environment? You know, temptation. Um, I, I think that um, 
the money that's involved is so, so vast um, that there is an enormous amount of temptation to take the plunge, um, to do something that might be uh, illegal. Um, and I think that um, you have to, again, put controls in place to kind of pe- keep people in line, to know that somebody's watching, somebody's monitoring the process so that um, they don't take that step. I think that it, it's such a, a part of our culture today. Um, the betting aspect is there for everybody. Um, and yeah, you have to be 18 years old, but I'm sure there are plenty of kids that are doing it that are a lot younger than that who are using fake IDs. <laughs> and so I, I, I think that it's a growing, growing problem um, that needs to be monitored. Uh, before we have a really ugly situation. So, Ken, um, wearing, you know, the forensic hat that you've always wore, uh, I know that um, you have different approaches uh, to this type of issue, and it's no different than when you're auditing a public company or a private company, for that matter, or you're involved in internal investigation. Um, you're thinking about records, you're thinking about questions that need to be asked, uh, you're thinking about what's out there in open source and public records and data, what's out there in social media. How, how are you thinking about, just from a pragmatic and practical standpoint, uh, the types of ways and, and the types of information that can be helpful here? Sure. So, you know, in in many cases, what we are looking at at companies um, is the controls that the company has in place um, that basically monitor the company as an overall activity, right? Um, and really what we're, we're talking about here is taking this down one level further where we're really focusing on the individuals. And this could be at companies, this could be at leagues, this could be anywhere where you're really going in and kind of looking at individuals who potentially have um, an opportunity within their own organization to do something um, that could potentially be illegal if they had um, the, a reason to do so. And so the bottom line is you're looking, you want to look at the history of that individual. You want to look at their current status from an economic perspective, from a psychological perspective. Um, you want to be able to look at them and say, well, is this a person who could potentially be swayed or convinced to do something illegal? Um, do they have certain of the key components that would drive them to become one of those individuals? Um, and basically what you're doing is you're risk ranking your employees. And are you, let's talk about, um, this is risk ranking employees, but very often corporations, uh, NOAA's, um, professional sports leagues do background checks and diligence on, on people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I know this is an area you've thought a great deal about. Yeah, it kind of goes beyond the the level of doing a background check. Really what you're, you're, I envision is um, asking the individual um, some very 
significant questions, hard questions, um, and, and making sure that um, they are being open and honest about their, their situation. Uh, you know, whether they've been bankrupt before, whether they have any tax issues, um, you know, what their level of debt is, um, and, and really getting the individuals to be a part of the process so they understand that basically what you're doing is you're, you're asking them some very hard questions, some personal questions, uh, which go beyond what you would get in a background check. And you want to see what kind of information you're being provided. Uh, and ultimately, you're going to go back and check that information to verify and see that that person is being upfront with you. Um, these can be very difficult questions. Um, you know, uh, how much debt do you have? How many houses do you own? Um, have you ever been divorced? Have you ever uh, gone bankrupt? Um, uh, you know, have, do you have any issues um, that you're dealing with with the tax authorities? All of these issues are the kinds of things that could potentially put somebody in a position where they have uh, an inordinate amount of pressure on them, uh, where if they were to be given an opportunity, they might rationalize that it's okay to do something that's not necessarily legal. Um, and at the ult ultimately, at the end of the day, you're risk ranking those employees. And the benefit, quite frankly, is that they know this is being done. Uh, they're a part of the process. So that becomes a preventive measure in itself. All right. And I've, um, what I'd like to do is just sort of put a pin in this, because what, what you're saying here is that there are certain, again, we're talking about human behavior, there are certain events and incidents in people's lives that might make them more susceptible or more vulnerable or, or more inclined, okay? Absolutely. And it goes back to what I said earlier, you know, with the pressure that people are under. And, and quite frankly, in today's day and age, there are a lot of people that are under an, an inordinate amount of pressure. Um, and then the whole rationalization scenario, like, well, somebody else is doing it, so why don't, why can't I do it? Or, or that person's making 20 times more money than I am. Why shouldn't I be able to get a piece of the pie? So those are all the kind of the key pieces of the puzzle that would potentially make somebody do something uh, which is illegal. Um, and then ultimately, as I said earlier, um, you want to try and squelch that opportunity by having the right controls in place. And I, you're drawing, a, just to be clear, Ken, basically what, what you're doing is you're drawing upon your experience for the years as a forensic auditor, both in terms of auditing companies, uh, but also responding to um, reports of fraud and doing internal investigation. These are sort of the common denominators that you have seen that can cause an issue. Yes, and, and just, just you know, I, I hate the term forensic auditor, David. Um, the term audit is really, you know, most, most audits are done in a very checklist approach uh, where they have, they literally have um, 27 different things that they have to do and they go down that checklist and once they're done with those 27 things, they sign off and they're, they're done. Um, when, when we get involved, we don't really have a checklist. We kind of work off a blank palette and based on the information that we get, based on the findings that we, we see, 
based on the documentation that we're able to, to kind of dig up, uh, we move in, in various different directions. We don't really have a checklist. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's much more creative than an audit. Let's just. Right. And, but, okay. And I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit because I, I, I've always held uh, auditors in the highest regard. And I've never, the good ones that I've had a chance to work with and, you know, very knowledgeable, sophisticated and caring people have never worked off a checklist. Yes, they have a checklist, but that doesn't define the work that they do. I, okay, I it's sort of a, a, a starting point, uh, not an end point. Okay, so, all right, uh, but point taken. Uh, let me pull a little bit from my own experience, both when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office and I was asked to speak to industry groups, but also um, because of the opportunity I had at Goldman Sachs. Um, and I'll, I'll just draw about the financial industry and we talked about insider trading. Um, what I will say about the very nature of the financial industry and investment banks in particular is that they hire incredibly talented people and very driven people and very ambitious people. And um, they often um, don't necessarily end up in finance, they go off to do other things, but many people do stay. But one of the immediate things that happens, and you know, institutions talk to people about this, they talk about insider trading rules and what people can do and can't do. But nobody, it's very tough to prepare people for the temptation of being in possession, being aware of information that you know will move a market and move a market in a very material and significant way, or the easy money that can be made. And I, I, I say that because, again, there's never a shortage in the SEC or the FBI's pipeline uh, around uh, insider trading cases. And it doesn't matter how many enforcement actions occur, uh, the issue may die down for a little while, but then it comes back. It's one of the great recurring waves in enforcement uh, analogs. And one of the things that I try to convey to people, and I think there are applications, one of, one of the things I try to um, impart, to, um, particularly to young people, uh, is that they will be exposed to these temptations. And let me give you the self-interested reason why you must not succumb. Uh, the types of stories about people that walked and talked and looked like them once upon a time whose lives ended up in ruins. Uh, the sophistication of law enforcement in monitoring markets and um, sort of identifying and recognizing, we'll call it, you know, um, trading activities and behavior that doesn't fit a common pattern outliers and how it gets picked up. The fact that I don't care how many offshore entities or people you share information with, uh, this is not an activity, a crime that you can commit by yourself, okay, because um, it's just impossible. You can't trade on insider information without somebody else being on the other side and possibly detecting. And also the lag period of time that you may think you get away with something and be tempted to do it again and again and again, but that, you know, very often it's it's a number of years later when the FBI or the SEC knock on your door. 
So as a matter of self-interest, as a matter of self-preservation, there will be many temptations and all sorts of ways that you think you can accomplish this, but it just doesn't work out from a cost-benefit basis. The risks are far too high and you know the consequences are very, very dire. And I've had people many years later uh, actually say to me that that's what they remembered most. Not the rules of the road, not why something was illegal, but this notion of uh, self-interest. And Ken, you and I, before this podcast, we talked about, particularly for younger people, um, where the temptations can come from. And uh, there's a very, very um, interesting, we'll call it personal narrative involving one of the most talented individuals to play basketball, uh, Connie Hawkins, who was basically, I'll use the word seduced, into um, shaving points and I think also sharing information that did not impact the ultimate outcome of the game, but nonetheless um, provided information, the basis for people to take advantage um, in a betting market. And Mr. Hawkins, um, who fortunately was, you know, came back to the league, and I believe he was um, elected to the Hall of Fame, and as someone who otherwise had an extraordinary life and career, um, you know, did fall prey to this. And so the points you're making about the degree of temptations and rationalizations, I think, is a very, very important point. But um, also the ability to educate people about their own self-interest and what can happen and how things are detected and you know the way government investigations often are built with collaborators. I think it's a significant part of that lesson and part of the, I'll call it one of the cornerstones perhaps of preventing what you've outlined is, is almost uh, inevitable human behavior. Yeah, and, and just for those who don't know, Connie Hawkins was Julius Irving before Julius Irving was Julius Irving. Um, and I, I remember reading a book when I was, uh, you know, probably in like seventh grade or something called Foul, F-O-U-L. If you ever want to read a, a cool book about Connie Hawkins, it's probably out there someplace. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of the things that I that I worry about is that you know, with all these prop bets that can be done in all these different leagues, there are so many things that won't really ultimately influence the end of the game and the result of the game, uh, which kind of is a rationalization from for some of these people where, you know, I'm not really hurting my teammates, I'm not really hurting anybody, uh, but I can go ahead and, 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 and do that, um, and no one's going to get hurt. Um, and just to touch on the insider trading scenario, I mean, you know, the SEC has all this focus on insider trading with securities. But um, if you think about insider trading from from the sports world's perspective, I mean, you know, what if a, a referee or a, an assistant coach, you know, knew that one of the players went out the night before and was really, really sick that day and wasn't going to play that well? Or, you know, they just knew about an injury that was hindering somebody that wasn't really well known in the league. Um, all of these little incidents 
could be considered insider trading if you were providing that information to somebody who was ultimately going to make a bet based on that. Um, Ken, I want to, um, it's a great analogy. I want to pick up on the other thing that around information and, and we'll call it the, the, the natural tendencies of human behavior. And you saw this implicitly uh, with Pete Rose. Mr. Rose, probably one of the most talented baseball players in the history of the game and um, just a very unique individual. Um, one can read between the lines that um, any bets that you know he did make, uh, his there was a rationalization, I am not betting on my own team, I'm not altering the outcome as a manager, um, this is just you know innocuous information um, and my bets have nothing to do with you know the integrity of my job etc and really the point you have made uh, I, I think which is very important is that uh, the nature of human behavior is that one can easily rationalize no harm no foul when in fact you know the law will look at it differently the sports leagues will look at it differently. The public will look at it differently, and obviously, you know, um, the political circles will look at it um, differently. And when these scandals do break, it, it takes a long time—a long, long time—to recover. And I will it just, from what I do know of um, how the NBA, and I think it was under Commissioner Stern at the time, who's um, passed away, uh, they quickly got on top when they realized they had a problem with one of their referees. Um, and there were obviously things that they put in place uh, to incorporate the acquired wisdom and acquired lessons of that. And what I'm hearing from you is that we have to stay proactive, whether you're running a company or uh, a sports league or a, a betting platform or, you know, um, obviously Las Vegas is always attuned to people who might have inside information. All right, and and um, they do. I, I do know the established, um, you know, sort of betting platforms coming out of Vegas work closely with law enforcement around this. Um, and so um, the points you're making, I think, are, are not only uh, I, I won't I won't call them prescient, but 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 it, it does give a unique view or an important view. Of history and what we have to be mindful of, because unlike uh, mutual funds, past performance often is predictive of future returns. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's healthy for companies, you know, to 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 do what I would call a health check, right? You know, kick the tires, whether it's a sports league or or you know a company, um, to basically examine how they how they monitor these kinds of potential issues um, and uh, put together preventive measures so that it doesn't happen to them in the future. Just for the audience, Ken is running a, uh, an NCAA pool where the interest fee is $1,000. <laughs> okay. Not true. Not true. Okay. Right. <laughs> anyway, Ken, uh, great insights. And I know you're working on uh, a number of what I'll refer to as um, products and uh, I'll refer to them as uh, forensic models 
to be made available. And uh, thank you, by the way, for giving me the opportunity to, to contribute a bit to that effort. And look forward to sharing that with the audience uh, in the coming months. Uh, but again, thanks for the leadership, thanks for the thoughtfulness, and thanks for spending some time. It's always a pleasure, David. Um, you have a, a great afternoon. You can learn how geopolitical events could affect your business with RAIN Intelligence Briefs. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes, all for a fraction of the cost you pay yourself. Sign up at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.